Capto Chapter 1, Preliminaries. Some readers of this sentence, the first in this book, may have been led to do so because they were attracted by the prospect of learning about work toward a philosophical theory of everything. Others may be motivated instead by incredulity. How could there be a philosophical theory of everything, or perhaps even of anything? These are good questions, and this book aims to give them good answers, beginning with the explanations of the subtitle, section 1.1, and title, section 1.2, the latter of which, despite its apparent outrageousness, did not prevent readers of these words from getting to this point. 1.1, an initial clarification of this book's subtitle. For sake of brevity, this book's subtitle speaks of the Structural Systematic Philosophy, SSP. Clarity is served, however, by speaking as well of the Structural Systematic Research Program in Philosophy, SSRPP. This program is undertaken but far from completed in structure and being, and being and God, structure and being particularly establishes this research program as a research program in philosophy by articulating it in sufficient detail to enable other philosophers, including this book's author and potentially any of its readers, to contribute to it. As explained below, Chapter 2, Structure and Being presents the abstract theoretical framework for the SSP, the, structural, the, the theory to which the SSRPP is devoted, but it does not come close to concretizing that framework in complete detail. It thus opens the way for other philosophers, again including this book's author, to contribute to the SSRPP to the research program in three distinct ways. First, others can treat in greater detail subject matters such as ethics and human freedom that structure and being treats only relatively briefly. Second, others can investigate subject matters, including, for example, political philosophy and the ontology of time that structure and being does not treat at all. Third, because structure and being both explicitly acknowledges that its presentation of the, of the SSP can be improved and explains how it can be improved, others can offer such improvements. This book, TAPTO, aims to contribute to the SSP in the first and third of the ways just identified. It supplements structure in being and being in God by providing, in chapters 1 and 2, a clear and concise introduction to the, this research program, and by presenting, in chapters 3 to 6 and 8, alternative accounts and, particularly in the case of human freedom, more extensive accounts than are to be found in either of the first two books. It aims to improve on the concretization of the SSP presented in Structure and Being by introducing as an alternative to Structure and Being's treatment of the aesthetic world in its section 4.4, a sketch in chapter 7 of a theory of beauty. That Structure and Being's presentation of the structural systematic philosophy can be improved on and expanded reveals, to be sure, Structure and Being's self-acknowledged imperfection and incompleteness. But far more importantly, it also reveals the viability and strength of the structural systematic research program in philosophy to which structure and being is devoted. 1.2, an initial clarification of this book's title. For two central reasons, the project indicated by the title of this book, Toward a Philosophical Theory of Everything, can easily appear early in the 21st century to be at best quixotic. The first reason is that the term theory of everything is commonly associated not associated not with philosophy, but with physics. The second reason is that even those who consider philosophy to be a discipline that produces theories of whatever quality appear virtually universally to deny that it should or even could undertake the task of producing a theory that is, in any reasonable and defensible sense, of everything. The purpose of this section is to show that neither of these reasons is a good one for rejecting the project of developing just such a theory. 
This section treats first the question of the subject matter or matters that do or should qualify as philosophical, because treating that question contributes to clarifying how philosophical theories of everything differ from theories situated in contemporary physics. The section relies on various terms and distinctions that are sufficiently clear for its purposes, but whose adequate explanations are provided only in later sections. Philosophy is a word whose history spans nearly two and a half millennia. Within that period, the word has been used in various different and often contradictory ways, so it is not surprising that it, and with it philosophical and so forth, has come to have various distinct meanings both in ordinary and in academic English and in other languages in which cognates of it appear. As is hinted at above and clarified below, in this book philosophy, the word philosophy that is, designates a strictly theoretical endeavor, not one that, for example, aims to change anyone's life or make anyone happy, although of course some books called philosophical do aim to do those things, and although this book will have effects on its readers' lives. In the time of Aristotle, the 4th century BCE, relatively shortly after the coinage of the term philosophia in ancient Greece, all theoretical inquiry could be classified as philosophical inquiry. For this reason, there were at that time no restriction on the subject, no restrictions on the subject matter potentially available to philosophical theorization. In a technical term clarified below, the universe of philosophical discourse was unrestricted. This largely continued to be the case until around the 17th century, when what came to be classified as non-philosophical modes of theorization, non-philosophical sciences, began to develop. Their development requires restricting their universes of discourse. Of central importance to the project undertaken in this book is the question of what then happens to philosophy. In his Philosophy One: A Guide Through the Subject, A.C. Grayling answers that question as follows. Quote, One can see philosophy as having given birth in the 17th century to natural science, in the 18th century to psychology, and in the 19th to sociology and linguistics while in the 20th century it has played a large part in the development of computer science, cognitive science, and research into artificial intelligence. No doubt this oversimplifies the role of philosophical reflection, but it does not much exaggerate it, because in effect philosophy consists in inquiry into anything not yet well enough understood to constitute a self-standing branch of knowledge. When the right questions and the right methods for answering them have been identified, the field of inquiry in question becomes an independent pursuit." End quote. Grayling is not alone. Indeed, the prominent analytic metaphysician Peter von Inkwagen goes so far as to say that, quote, most people who have thought about the matter would take this to be one of the defining characteristics of philosophy, end quote. In considering the position taken by Grayling and von Inkwagen, it is important to ask the following question. According to what theory or theoretician is philosophical inquiry not scientific? Or, more specifically, within the theorization of what universe of discourse could the sentence philosophical inquiry is not scientific, emerge. Unquestionably, that sentence, as it is implicitly understood by Grayling and von Inwagen, cannot emerge with any theory having a restricted universe of discourse. Why not? Precisely because its articulation presupposes that the unrestricted universe of discourse is divided into restricted universes of discourse of two kinds, and that those are the only kinds of universes of discourse that there are. There are the restricted ones that are well enough understood to be studied by distinct sciences, and there are the restricted ones that are not, and therefore, for now, are left to philosophy. What does this show? Three things. First, that if every theoretical discipline must have a restricted universe of discourse, then no discipline could develop theories about the unrestricted universe of discourse. 
Second, that one cannot present a theory about how all the restricted universes of discourse of the various restricted inquiries relate to one another and to philosophy's universe, or perhaps universes, of discourse, unless one thematizes the unrestricted universe of discourse, and that is precisely what both Grayling and Van Inwagen do, albeit, again, only implicitly. Third, that if the subject matter for philosophy is indeed that which has not, that which has not been claimed by any non-philosophical science, then if the unrestricted universe of discourse is, or can, or must be a subject matter for theoretical inquiry, it is a subject matter that non-philosophical sciences, which are individuated by their restricted universes of discourse, must leave to philosophy. As may be evident from the preceding paragraph, the task of developing a philosophical theory of everything begins to come into view if the development of the non-philosophical sciences is taken not to restrict philosophy, philosophy's universe of discourse, but instead to clarify a universe of discourse that can be a subject matter only for philosophy. Prior to modernity, because philosophy could thematize anything, including any restricted universe of discourse, it was often far from obvious that philosophy could or should thematize everything, understanding everything to mean the unrestricted universe of discourse. In the so-called analytic philosophy, predominant at predominant at present in much of the world, the situation is yet worse, because analytic philosophers tend to adopt the divide-and-conquer strategy that has served particularly the natural sciences so well. They work in the currently recognized areas of specialization in philosophy, meta ethics, metaphysics, philosophy of language, philosophy of mind, and so forth, making few, if any, attempts to determine how all of these areas might fit together. At this point, there's the following footnote. Soames, 2003, Philosophical Analysis in the 20th Century, describes the analytic philosophy of the 30 years preceding its publication as follows, quote, Philosophy has become the highly organized discipline done by specialists primarily for other specialists. The number of philosophers has exploded, the volume of publications has swelled, and the subfields of serious philosophical investigation have multiplied. Not only is the broad field of philosophy today far too vast to be embraced by one mind, something sim similar is true even of many highly specialized subfields, end quote. Nine years later, Schwartz 2012, A Brief History of Analytic Philosophy, from Russell to Rawls, comments as follows, quote, The only qualm I have about Soames' statement is his claim that philosophy has become a highly organized discipline. I'm not sure what he means by that, but highly disorganized discipline would seem like a truer discipline description given the rest of what he says. End quote. Back to the main text. As a consequence, the SSP's subject matter, the unrestricted universe of discourse, cannot come into the view of these analytic philosophers. Because the unrestricted universe of discourse includes everything in at least some significant sense of everything, a philosophical theory whose subject matter is the unrestricted universe of discourse, is a philosophical theory of everything. To leave open the possibility that philosophical theories may have restricted universes of discourse, as currently most do, the, sub the SSRPP designates the philosophy whose subject matter is the unrestricted universe of discourse, systematic philosophy. Given the preceding account, it is easy to explain, indeed it may well already be obvious, why no theory presented by contemporary physics could be a theory of everything of the sort that a philosophical theory of everything would be. Contemporary physics has as its subject matter a restricted universe of discourse. This point is clearly articulated by the prominent mathematical physicist Roger Penrose. Quote, the terminology theory of everything has always worried me. There is a certain 
physicists' arrogance about it that suggests that knowing all the physical laws would tell us everything about the world, at least in principle. Does a physical theory of everything including a th include a theory of consciousness? Does it include a theory of morality or of human behavior or of aesthetics? Even if our idea of science could be expanded to incorporate these things, would we still think of it as physics, or would it even be reducible to physics? End quote. Our idea of science is considered just below, but even without such consideration, it is fully clear that physics as it is now cannot develop theories about all the subject matters Penrose lists, or indeed about many others. The philosophical theory of everything to which this book aims to contribute, on the other hand, must include theories of consciousness, of morality, of some aspects of human behavior, and of aesthetics, as well as, in a sense and in a manner explained below, everything else. It is important to emphasize at the outset, however, that although this philosophical theory of everything is holistic in the sense of being comprehensive, it is not imperialistic in that it in no way aims to replace any of the non-philosophical sciences. So it leaves the study of biology to biologists, the study of physics to physicists, and so forth, but it, of course, can also consider their work, um, even though it does know, for example, experiments in physics or in biology. As for our idea of science, as suggested by the clarification above of what the word philosophy means in this book, and as explained in greater detail below in section 2.5, ordinary language does not determine how the SSP uses words that it draws from that language. According to the SSP, theoretical inquiry within any current academic discipline can be scientific. Whether any such specific inquiry qualifies as scientific is determ determined not by the inquiry subject matter, but instead, again relying on a term clarified below, by the quality of the theoretical framework that inquiry relies on. The SSP, relying as it does on a clearly articulated theory, theoretical framework, classifies itself as a science and indeed, because of the comprehensiveness of its subject matter, as the universal science. One additional pa aspect of the Grayling passage quoted above can now be fruitfully considered. Each science, each non-philosophical science in the terminology of the SSP, is, according to Grayling, a self-standing branch of knowledge and independent pursuit. What might be meant here by self-standing or independent, and what by knowledge? Presumably, a science is a branch of knowledge only if, one way or another, it presents linguistic accounts, theories, that are true in some sense of true. But how is it that there can be linguistic accounts that, it's tr that are true? How is it that languages can articulate the subject matters of the relevant theories? And what is the appropriate sense of true? The non-philosophical sciences presuppose generally implicitly one or another answer to each of these questions and, can, and to many more, but cannot raise these questions. The same is true of the current subdisciplines in philosophy. Precisely because the questions cannot be ra raised within the restricted universes of discourse of those sciences. As a consequence, those sciences are not self-standing or independent, at least in that they stand or depend on what they presuppose but cannot investigate. What they presuppose but cannot investigate can and must, however, be investigated by systematic philosophy. An additional point important to this section begins by noting that there is a phrase at least roughly synonymous with theory of everything, as that phrase is used to name a theory within the science of physics. The second phrase is final theory, as used, for example, in Steven Weinberg's book, Dreams of a Final Theory. The SSP, if completed, would be a philosophical theory of everything, but would not in any way be a final theory. As explained more fully below and in various places in Structure and Being, 
The structural systematic philosophy aims to be the best currently available systematic philosophy, hence the best currently available philosophical theory of everything. If it succeeds in being the best currently available th systematic philosophy, then it is, by its own self-assessment, better than is any available alternative, but it is not close closer to some hypothesized final systematic philosophy because it denies the intelligibility of the notion of a final systematic philosophy. More about this in section 2.3. In addition, even if it is the best currently available systematic philosophy, the SSP explicitly acknowledges that it may someday be supplanted by a superior theory and it indicates how that supplanting would be accomplished. That's explained in Structure and Being 644 to 646.